Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Are you struggling with symptoms of a hormonal imbalance? Do you have a diagnosis of PCOS, endometriosis or unexplained infertility and just have no idea where to start? Are you constantly trying to cover your cystic acne with makeup or make your thinning hair appear thicker with different shampoos and hairstyles? Is your period all over the place? Is it really heavy or even completely absent? Do you spend all of your time searching online for answers, posting in Facebook groups trying to find the solution to your problems? If you answered yes to any of those questions and you live in the UK, you would be perfect for my six-week online group coaching program. Join me and nine other ladies each week as I teach you the six pillars of hormonal health, including how to regulate your blood sugar and insulin levels, improve gut health, regulate your adrenal and thyroid hormones, and finally get control over your symptoms. Each week, you'll have access to live video calls, worksheets and reading material for you to work through at your own pace. You'll get access to an interactive Facebook group where I'll be hosting weekly Q&As. This is your chance to ask me anything. There'll also be the option to upgrade for discounted one-on-one sessions and access to functional lab tests like the Dutch Hormone Panel and the GI Max Stool Test that you've probably heard me talk all about before on these podcast episodes. Plus recommendations for practitioner grade supplements all with 10% discount. For more information and to get involved, head over to my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and select the Hormones in Harmony group coaching program under the one-on-one support menu. I'll also include a link to the webpage in the show notes to this episode. If you have any questions, send me an email or DM on Instagram. You can find me at vivanaturalhealth. I'm so excited to get started with this program and I'll hope that you'll join me. Hello, welcome back to the Hormones in Harmony podcast and today is another solo episode and because you all love the acne kind of masterclass that I did the other week I've decided to do one solely on PCOS because it's one of my passions, it's one of my areas of expertise because it's something that I dealt with personally and I just feel like all of my research is kind of all up in my head and I really want to share what I've learned over the years with you all because it is quite an isolating condition. It's quite complex as well. There's no standard protocol for PCOS. There's different types, which we will cover today. Um, so I thought I'd do a Q&A session and um, the commonly asked questions that I frequently get. So I've been making note of those over the past few weeks, either if you sent them via email or via DM on Instagram and ones that I just see popping up quite frequently. Um, and on my blog post as well. If, if you've read through them, you've probably seen that there's quite a lot of information on PCOS. So I thought I'd have a lot of it all in one place to refer you to in the future. If you have any questions, we're going to go through diet and lifestyle and nutrition, supplements, 
it's probably going to be a long episode so just a heads up and I've got my notes here so I can go through the list of questions as we go but just a disclaimer that this isn't medical advice and um, you should be working with a practitioner if you've got complex health conditions, particularly hormonal endocrine disorders. Um, it's not great to self-treat because you can end up getting yourself into a bit of a pickle and actually leading to further hormonal imbalances. And I've been there myself. Um, so yeah, it's not medical advice. Um, speak to your practitioner. It's not designed to replace that of your health practitioner. But if you want more on my personal experience with PCOS, um, because it's quite extensive, then you can go to episode one of the Hormones and Harmony podcast, which is all about my health journey. And I really dig into my, it was like over a five year period from age 18 to about 23 when I was struggling the most with my health, but it wasn't just PCOS. I had um, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, parasites, gut issues. At one point I had hypothalamic amenorrhea, so I had no period for another cause. So there's a lot going on. So if you want to take half an hour to listen to the whole journey, what I kind of did, what I went through, then refer back to episode one. But just as an overview, I believe that my PCOS was triggered by over-exercising and under-eating. So I was never like really overweight. Um, and I believe it's kind of an adrenal stress response that triggered my PCOS um, because it is a genetic, there's genetic aspects, but if I would have avoided that situation, then I could have lived my life without PCOS. But unfortunately, once things are triggered, then it, it can kind of activate the genes and then you're more susceptible to um, having symptoms, which is exactly what happened. And what happens for one in 10 or even up to one in five women these days. And PCOS is the number one endocrine disorder in women of reproductive years. So women who are still cycling, this is um, the number one endocrine disorder and the number one cause of infertility in those women as well. So um, I remember when I was diagnosed, they didn't really give any skirmongering like they sometimes do to other people. I was lucky that I wasn't told that um, I'd have I'd have difficulty trying to conceive or would need to go through IVF or I'm infertile, anything like that. And I've definitely heard people being told my doctor just explained we didn't really explain what it is but uh, I had to google that myself but he basically said that if I needed fertility treatments or help in the future then that was definitely available to me which kind of didn't make me feel great but again I had no idea really what was going on and it was the first that I'd really heard of it so like you do you go home and google everything and see see what you can find and there was a lot of information pretty standard lose weight exercise more but in my situation that didn't work because obviously I was doing all of those things anyway and continuing on that path would just make things 10 times worse so it was a lot of different trial and error and um I went on the pill pretty much straight away because he said that my alternative was just to wait and see what happens which obviously if I wasn't getting any advice on my diet and nutrition then I would have carried on with the exact same thing so my alternatives were wait and see what happens or go on the pill and all of your symptoms will clear up. And I, I go into all my journey with the pill and everything on that episode if you want to listen. Um, so yeah, we'll get into what PCOS actually is. So it's a complex metabolic endocrine disorder. So that sounds like basically Chinese to some people. All it means is that your metabolism's involved, your hormones are involved, and it's complex. There's no one known cause there's multiple different types of PCOS which we'll cover 
there's multiple different um, collections of symptoms. So the term syndrome means a collection of, sy of symptoms. So there's not one classic thing that you have to um, look like or a classic group of symptoms that you have to struggle with. They can be um, pretty broad and you have to kind of piece them together to find out what's going on with you. So it's characterized by an imbalance of your male and female hormones. We all have male and female hormones. So men have estrogen, we have testosterone and other androgens, which are the category of male hormones. So I'll use those terms interchangeably, androgens and male hormones, um, because they're one in, one in the same, basically. But women should have um, a lot less androgens than men do, hence why we can't kind of grow muscle and we're not as strong as men physically. And um, that's because they have much more androgens in our system. But women with PCOS, for a number of different reasons, have elevated levels of, of these things. And this can lead to some of the symptoms um, which I'll go through. So they're going to be things like hirsutism, which is facial and excessive body hair growth. Um, so we all have kind of like peach fuzz on our face or on the upper lip. But with hirsutism, it's more of the coarse, dark hair that is quite thick and prominent and some women need to shave or they have to do a lot of plucking waxing lasers it can grow in like the beard area that men have um it can grow under the belly button in that area too on the inner thighs on your back so you can probably understand that it's pretty um draining and embarrassing to have this issue i didn't have it excessively i definitely had it on my chin underneath you'd get these like thick black hairs poking out, which I would just pluck and they'd be quite long once you get them out. So it's not a very um, exciting thing to do, but it definitely needs to be done. And yeah, for some women it is quite problematic. And once they start shaving, they get into a vicious cycle of they can't stop once they do that, which is um, very like detrimental to the quality of life as well. Another common symptom is acne, particularly cystic acne. It can be all over your face all day long, um, every day of the week. Or it could be in the lower part of the face, more hormonal and cystic and deep. And it may also be cyclic as well. So it could kind of flare up at different times of the month, commonly around ovulation, which is around mid-cycle. Uh, for women with PCOS, it's sometimes a little bit later ovulation if they ovulate at all. Um, and sometimes near the, the start of the period as well when the hormones are fluctuating if acne break, breaks out then it tends to be more hormonal and other symptoms like weight gain or weight loss resistance so if you're constantly gaining weight even though you're eating healthy um, if it's particularly around the abdominal area then that's another sign that it could be PCOS hormonal related because you tend to store a lot of your weight there if your insulin and your cortisol levels are high either or, um, or both um, definitely a possibility so that abdominal apple shape is very common as opposed to the pear shape where women carry their weight on their hips and the bum and the thighs um, and also irregular cycles and ovulation so most women ovulate um, mid-cycle so on a typical 28-day cycle you can expect it to be around day 14 and that's not Every month it's going to be the same. It definitely needs to track that and see how that is for you. But for women with PCOS, they usually have longer cycle lengths. So it could be every 40, 50, 60 days. They could go months with it periods. They could have two periods in a year and that's pretty normal for them. 
and when they do have a period it can be anovulatory meaning that they're not actually ovulating therefore they're not releasing an egg and hence why it can be the number one driver of infertility in women of reproductive years as well and then for an actual diagnosis of PCOS I tend to find it's either very overdiagnosed so there's other conditions that can mimic PCOS um, there's been other episodes on this like the one I did with Laura Bryden we discussed something called hypothalamic amenorrhea and this is loss of period due to stress on the body that can be over exercising under eating it could be mental stress and some of those symptoms can obviously mimic PCOS because if you don't have a period and you have acne and you have those types of symptoms then that could easily be diagnosed as PCOS and then there's other conditions like non-congenital adrenal hyperplasia and even hypothyroidism can sometimes mimic this condition too but then there's other women who it's been misdiagnosed it's been underdiagnosed so they've not even considered PCOS even though they've got a lot of fertility issues and hormonal issues it's just not been considered so I either find it's one or two of those extremes and the way that it's diagnosed these days by conventional doctors is by something called the Rotterdam criteria, which means that you need to have two out of the three factors present. The first one is polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. So they may do a transvaginal ultrasound or they'll do one on your abdomen and they'll look at the appearance of your ovaries. And in women with PCOS, it can be that they have a polycystic ovarian appearance this means they may have told you that it's like a string of pearls so there's multiple different follicles on the ovaries and I remember when I was told that I thought I had like growths or tumors all over my ovaries but it's actually the the eggs that we all have present um they just aren't kind of developing properly maturing and then one isn't released so they kind of build up and have this appearance on the ovaries so that would be the first factor that doctors look for um, the second one would be symptoms or indications of elevated androgens and uh, so these male hormones that i mentioned and this could either be symptom wise so in terms of your appearance if you're dealing with hirsutism or acne they could be classed as signs are of androgenic um, nature or it could be that your blood work you have elevated levels of one of these androgens um, so that would be another factor that they'd consider and then the last one is an irregular cycle or irregular ovulation. So it could be that your cycles are really long, really irregular, um, or it could be that you're, you're having your progesterone levels tracked or you're being asked to measure ovulation and you find that you're not ovulating at all. So that would be the third and final factor that they'd use to diagnose PCOS. But remember, you only need two out of three of those things. And um, hence why it can be missed sometimes and it could be overdiagnosed as mistaken for other conditions as well um, but there's a actual download on my website called PCOS lab test to request um, and this one goes into the lab work that I'd like to run for women with PCOS to get a, an idea as to what's going on really with the root cause is it really PCOS what type of PCOS is it so definitely head over I'll link that in the show notes to the download but um, you could take this to your doctor or ask for some of the blood work on there that will look at what type of androgen is present because it's commonly misthought that PCOS, um, the androgens are only produced from your ovaries. And that's not true. Um, I think 25 or 50% of the androgens actually come from your adrenal glands, which are your stress hormone releasing glands. 
So it could be that you have a particular androgen coming from your adrenal glands. So it could be stress related. Um, so it would be helpful to see what's going on with your blood sugar. Is it insulin based? Um, so definitely check that download out if you haven't already. And when it comes to testing as well, you may have been told that all of your blood tests are normal, but you still have like raging acne and all the symptoms of PCOS, but you're told that it can't possibly be because your levels are normal within range. So there's a difference between blood levels and also urine or saliva hormone testing as well. And we go into much more detail on this in episode 25 with Dr. Carrie Jones, who's like the hormone queen. So if you haven't listened to that one, then that one will be really helpful in letting you understand the difference between blood and urine tests. But just as an overview, a lot of the hormones in your blood are bound to carrier proteins. So they're not really free and available to measure. Whereas in your urine, it's the metabolites and the breakdown of your hormones. So they can't really be missed. And you can really get a good idea as to whether your your hormone levels may be normal in blood, but they could be going down really potent pathways that can be causing um, problems for you once you start to break them down. So the Dutch test, hence why that's one of my favorite tests to run in practice, is because it's very comprehensive and it really gives you an idea as to what's going on with your hormones, especially if you've been someone who's been told that everything's normal, you're fine, like go on your way, and you can actually get some more answers with that one as well. And Conventional medication, I had a few questions on that, what my thoughts are, um, whether metformin or the birth control pill will be helpful. With the birth control pill, that's kind of the standard recommendation that you're going to get. So you go to your doctors, they're going to put you on birth control, majority of the time recommend metformin, maybe an anti-androgen or a cream for your acne, and that's kind of it. And although these medications can be very effective at clearing up symptoms, there's no doubt about that. My skin was like the clearest it had ever been whilst on the pill. But the problem is that they're not actually addressing the underlying root cause of the PCOS, which left unchecked can kind of develop into other things down the line, whether that's a really difficult menopause, whether that's um, severe insulin resistance that's left unchecked and develops into type 2 diabetes, which puts you at risk of a whole host of complex, quite life-threatening health conditions down the line. And obviously that's like really future if it's left for a long period of time. Cardiovascular disease, certain types of cancer. If you're not cycling correctly, then you're not shedding your uterine lining, which can obviously increase your risk of endometrial cancer. So it can be quite serious. And a lot of people turn to the medications because they're just desperate for anything and that's the only option that they have. Uh, they're not even aware that there's nutrition and lifestyle factors that they can do or maybe natural supplements. Um, so I go into this on a blog post called Conventional Medications for PCOS and Natural Alternatives. And this, this blog post was really well received and a lot of people, they'd been searching for this type of information. They just wanted not real biased. Obviously, I'm biased towards the more natural things because that's what I believe in. But I'm showing the evidence for both as well. So like the scientific research, um, the potential side effects of the conventional medications, what to expect, potential side effects, maybe some ways to offset some of the negative effects as well. Because if you choose to be on the pill, you're fully aware of the side effects, then absolutely great. I'm totally behind you on that as well. But there are things that you can do to maybe offset some of the negative symptoms and negative effects of the pill from developing. 
so that's covered as well but the most common natural treatments that I recommend again this isn't medical advice and you can't just stop medication or not take it because you're listening to this you need to work with someone who can help you figure out what's best and some of these things can't be combined so don't start taking it um, unless you're working with someone who knows what they're doing but the most common one probably is inositol which is a part of the b vitamin family and it's believed that women with pcos have a higher excretion rate of this nutrient meaning that they don't retain it in the their body for a long time and inositol is really important for insulin signaling so it helps with um, potential insulin resistance it helps with egg quality and therefore ovulation progesterone production so this is probably one of the most studied nutrients for pcos and i actually think it's because they're trying to make it into a pharmaceutical so that's why they backed a lot of research into it but it's definitely not the only thing but for most women with pcos regardless of the type i think inositol is really safe and effective um because it can help with like stress and anxiety as well it has like a calming effect on the system so who doesn't need that <laughs> then the other ones are all listed on the blog post as well but just as an overview they're going to be things like berberine um, b vitamins zinc um, sol palmetto reishi mushroom nettle root but again they all have different kind of superpowers different benefits depending on what symptoms you're dealing with what type of pcos and if you have other coexisting medical conditions as well or you're on medication it's really important that you um, do some investigation into potential interactions before you just start on something and just see how it is because um, that's not great. Just you wouldn't do that with like your um, if something happens to your car, you wouldn't just try and guess what's happening and do it yourself. And this is your body we're talking about, so it's really important that you um, do some research and really think about what you're doing before you just jump into something that you listen to on a podcast even this one or reading a blog post um, just really pay attention and don't do anything silly then next question someone asked about the causes of pcos and it's similar with many other health conditions whether it's endometriosis or migraines or ibs there tends to be some sort of genetic predisposition there but the thing with genetics is that we now know that genetics aren't everything they're not the destiny they're just kind of the blueprint but it's your environment that really turns them on or off or lets them activate and trigger but you can keep them silenced by doing certain things in your lifestyle to prevent that from happening as well because your body is really responding to your environment at all times hence why we're so adaptive and we've been able to survive this long it's because our body's very resilient and it really takes on what's going on in the environment so if your environment's telling your body that it's stressed maybe it's undernourished maybe there's a lot going on um, in terms of food sensitivities or something dangerous in your breathing breathing air then it could be that your genes have switched on and then you're displaying with some of these pcos symptoms as well so the first and most common underlying cause of pcos is something called insulin resistance which is the pre predisposing factor to um, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance occurs when your body becomes numb to the actions of insulin. And remember that insulin is produced by your pancreas. It rises, um, it's released when blood sugar levels rise after eating. And its job is to carry the glucose from your bloodstream into the cells for your cells to use as energy. But what can happen is over time, um, due to things like chronic inflammation or excessive sugar intake, 
or um, nutrient deficiencies, things like that, the receptor sites on the cells can start to get damaged or blocked or insulin doesn't start to work as well as it should be. And that leads to more insulin being produced because it's trying to get into that cell. So it's doing everything that it can. Your body's pumping out more and more and more insulin um, and your blood sugar's left high because it's not being shuttled into the cells and it's left to increase. And all of that can be very stressful to the body, very inflammatory. And excess insulin actually stimulates your ovaries to produce androgens if you have PCOS. So that's where the androgens are produced. Um, it stimulates the outer cell of the ovary called the theca cell, the outer lining of that cell to produce androgens like testosterone, androstenedione. Um, so that's the connection between insulin resistance and PCOS. And it's believed that up to 80% of women with PCOS diagnosis have some degree of insulin resistance. And this can mean that you have a very mild form um, of insulin resistance, or it could be that you have full-blown insulin resistance almost at type two, type 2 diabetes level. And again, this is something that can be missed because proper testing isn't really routinely done. If they're testing your um, glucose metabolism, then they'll just look at fasting glucose. And a lot of the times, this is another marker that's often in range even in optimal ranges sometimes, but it's the insulin, sometimes the HbA1c, that's really out of whack and that commonly doesn't get tested. So it could be that your blood sugar levels look normal, but it's after you eat that your blood sugar levels and your insulin spikes way too high for way too long as well. So you're not actually clearing it from your system. And if you've got a lot of insulin floating around, then you've obviously got a lot of androgens being produced as well. So, um, Again, I have blog posts on um, pretty much all of these subjects, but I'll have one on the four different types of PCOS. I'll run through them now, but if you want more information on how to know if you have insulin resistant type PCOS, um, you don't necessarily have to be overweight for this one. So it doesn't mean that you um, necessarily obese or overweight. You may be lean or even normal weight, but still be insulin resistant. So that's another thing that's commonly missed. People are told that they're don't look like someone who has PCOS, but that's absolute nonsense because there's no one one size fits all in terms of appearance with this condition. And the blog post I'll link in the show notes. It's the four types of PCOS. And then there's another one that's a part two to that one with the different natural solutions for each one as well. The next type of PCOS is adrenal PCOS. And as I mentioned before, the adrenal glands produce androgens too. So for some people, they have a particular androgen called DHEAS, and this is only produced by the adrenal glands. So if that one's elevated, then we definitely know that this is stress and adrenal-based, and these all have um, pretty different recommendations. With the insulin-resistant type, it's best to keep carbohydrates quite low in the diet, nothing like a ketogenic diet, but um, lower in some of these simple sugars and refined sugars, and more high in healthy fats and proteins um, whereas individuals with adrenal PCOS they can actually require a lot more carbohydrates so complete opposite recommendations there but same diagnosis and sometimes not differentiated by conventional practitioners um, so yeah adrenal PCOS is less common but definitely still a problem and you can have multiple different types of PCOS so I've definitely experienced all of them at one point. Um, the the insulin resistant one, um, I think that was an initial 
problem I had at a mild level. But obviously the adrenal stress that came along with the over-exercise and under-eating made that worse as well. And then the next type is a post-pill PCOS. So this isn't like a true diagnosis, but it can be a temporary condition and state that you go into once you discontinue the hormonal birth control pill. And when you're on the pill, your hormones are kind of on flat line. So everything's shut down. Your brain to ovarian communication is shut down, basically. And your androgens are really soaked up by a sponge. It's kind of it's called sex hormone binding globulin. And the birth control pill really increases that. So the hormones that you do have circulating in your body, then your the sex hormone binding globulin acts like a sponge and sucks them all up so they're unavailable. Hence why your oily skin may improve, your acne may improve, um, your hair loss may be um, less problematic, it may be less greasy. And once you come off the pill, then obviously sex hormone binding globulin can reduce. You're no longer flooded with these synthetic hormones and your body has to relearn how to produce some of these things again. And for the first couple of months, it can go into overdrive. So it's pumping out all of these androgens and testosterone. Everything's really oily and greasy. You're breaking out. Maybe you're angry and irritable. And this is because you've got a lot of androgens in your system. And this is the point where a lot of women are diagnosed with PCOS. So maybe they've come off the pill and they're ready to start trying for a family. They start to develop all these crazy symptoms that they've never had before. They go to the doctors, maybe four months after coming off the pill, and they're diagnosed with PCOS. And it could be that they've always had this condition and maybe they went on the pill too soon before they even noticed that this was a problem. But in some cases, like a lot of the cases actually, these people come off, they've never had any symptoms before, they had a regular cycle before they went on the pill, no issues with real acne or hair loss or anything. And then they come off and the doctor's telling them that they've, they've got PCOS and they've always had it, it's just that they've been on the pill and the pill was helping. So go back on the pill, that's the recommendations. But it can be a lot of the times temporary and just as a result of a hormonal imbalance that's triggered by coming off the pill. And then finally, the last type of PCOS is inflammatory PCOS. And this can be due to a number of different factors, such as chronic infections in the body that can really be stressful, promote insulin resistance, whether that's in the gut or a chronic viral infection, these things can trigger a lot of similar symptoms in the body and worsen or exacerbate PCOS. Um, it could be a nutrient deficiency or it could be a thyroid disorder. And thyroid, a lot of women with PCOS, 25% of them have some sort of thyroid disorder, but this is another thing that isn't routinely tested. And when it is tested, they test like one part of six, seven different markers that are really important. They're testing a brain hormone, hormone a lot of the time called um, thyroid-stimulating hormone. And that's not even a thyroid hormone, that's a brain hormone. So I don't even know how they would believe that that's the most important one if it's not even produced by the thyroid. Um, the full thyroid recommendations that I make are on the free download that I mentioned at the start, the PCOS guide. So if you have no idea what I'm on about, ask your doctor to run a full thyroid panel, including antibodies and reverse t3 as well because it's very common in pcos it can mimic pcos or it could exacerbate the the symptoms as well they've even done studies on rats when they remove the thyroid they develop polycystic ovarian syndrome 
So they absolutely go hand in hand. Your adrenals, your thyroid, and your ovaries are all connected. They're the golden triangle, and when one of them's out of whack, then the other two are not far behind, and you get a lot of symptoms from all of them as well. And it's usually the adrenals that go first, then it's usually the ovaries, and then the thyroid family gives up. But hopefully we want to prevent that from happening, so we intervene at a point like this, hence why you're listening to this podcast and following my work because I really want to help you get better as soon as possible so you don't have to deteriorate and deal with some of these additional health markers as well. So genetics are important. Someone asked, my mum my has PCOS, my sisters, am I going to develop it? And not necessarily. So it's believed that evolutionarily women with PCOS were the stronger, more dominant females who survived things like famine, and stress 10,000 years ago because we were the ones who could survive without food because we were mildly insulin resistant and um, we were the ones who carried a bit more weight we were the stronger ones so we could do some of the work and the fighting which is kind of cool if you think about it but obviously now we're living in a much different environment and we don't have to deal with some of these things anymore these days we're just sat on our bum all day in an office or um, eating food, we have access to food 24-7, we never have to fast unless it's when we're sleeping. So genetics don't take that long to evolve. Uh, genetics take a long time to evolve, but our, our environment has changed so quickly that our genes just haven't kept up yet. So a lot of women these days are dealing with some side effects and some symptoms because of genetics, but Genetics are the thing that load the gun, but it's the environment that pulls the trigger. So just because you have a family history um, of PCOS doesn't mean that you're going to get it. And people who blame everything on their genes, saying that their mum had it, their grandparents had conditions like this, then um, it's not necessarily the case. And a lot of the time it's because these families have similar um, lifestyles, they have similar diets. They have similar beliefs when it comes to health. So it's not necessarily the genetics as the, the lifestyle factors that are just passed on in terms of um, learning about things when you're younger as well. There's actually, there's been studies and research as well into exposure to stressors, particularly environmental chemicals and toxins in utero. So when you were being built and being created and formed in your mother's uterus, if there was any type of exposure to an endocrine disrupting chemical. If you haven't already listened to um, the podcast episode that I did with Laura Adler, then that's all about environmental toxins if you've got no idea what I'm talking about. But basically these are chemicals that are man-made a lot of the time and they can enter into our body either through our breath or our food or our skin and actually mimic our hormones because our hormones are like minuscule um, and tiny amounts that you can't even see with the human eye. So a lot of the chemicals in things like plastics, heavy metals, fragrances, they enter through our skin or into our body and they can actually disrupt natural hormone production or function or detoxification. And it's believed that women with PCOS may have some sort of embryonic exposure to some of these things as well, which alters the genetic profile so that PCOS is triggered once they hit puberty and the hormones start to kick in. So that's really important if you are currently pregnant or you're going to want to be a parent in the future. If you have PCOS currently, there are things that you can do to clean up your environment and 
reduce your toxic load so you're not passing that on to another offspring who will um likely develop something in the future as well because the world's just getting more toxic so if you can start your child off with a really good set of genetics really good um quality genes and building blocks that the body's created on and teach them about some of these things when they're younger about avoiding exposures then that's absolutely amazing and that's like the goal but obviously it's not the case for everyone i had a question here about what happens if pcos is left untreated and i mentioned before it's usually the insulin resistant type that is the most um, predisposed to some of the long-term things like um, type 2 diabetes and associated conditions like alzheimer's stroke cardiovascular diseases and cancers but if you just have general hormone imbalances you think that they're normal everyone has them it's just something that we have to suffer with pms every single month or um, difficulties trying to get pregnant it's absolutely not normal our bodies are designed to be fertile when they're healthy pain isn't isn't normal but it is very common if you had pain in anywhere else in your body severely um, multiple times per month then you would be concerned about that but because it's in our uterus we don't pay it as much attention and it's dismissed because that's what we should deal with as women or so we're taught but if you're having symptoms of a hormone imbalance now regardless of if you have pcos or not then if you don't do anything about it it's just going to snowball and create more problems in the future as well you may feel fine you can just take some painkillers or put on some extra makeup if your skin's breaking out but the long-term consequences could be that you have fertility issues when you're trying to conceive maybe five ten years down the line or it could be that your transition into menopause is pretty terrible so a lot of women who have really bad hot flashes or pile on the weight or have depression um, triggered when they transition into menopause often had symptoms of hormone imbalance 20 30 years prior but never actually did anything about it and then it really triggered everything and it's like the straw that brought the camels back once they transition into menopause as well is pcos reversible i definitely believe that symptoms are reversible because i've done it myself i've helped hundreds of clients do it too and symptoms can improve with nutrition and lifestyle changes you can live symptom free free from acne you can regrow your hair you can lose the weight but if your genetic predisposition is to have pcos if you go straight back into living an unhealthy lifestyle drinking alcohol eating a ton of sugar not exercising stressing out then your symptoms are just going to come straight back so i don't believe that it's curable because you can't really change your genes but you can influence them as to whether they're expressing or not through your nutrition and lifestyle but with conditions like pcos you, you really need to be careful long term and take care of your body otherwise your symptoms are going to tell you that something's off i, I like to rec i like to think of symptoms as messages from your body and communication as to when things are off so when i get a breakout now i understand what's going on i know why I know that it's maybe I've eaten something that I'm sensitive to or I've not been sleeping well or I worked out a little bit too hard and that's feedback from my body. So try and reframe your symptoms in that way because it's going to take the pressure off and make you more respectful of your body and it's just a great way to see how you're taking care and whether things are working or not as well. Okay, so someone's asking about the gut and PCOS connection. So this is kind of the area that I absolutely love and I've got so much interest in. 
Um, so gut health is, there's a lot of research these days about the gut and the brain connection, the gut and the skin connection, the gut and fertility connection. So it's absolutely connected to everything. It's the center of our body, but it's also the center of our health. And a lot of chronic illnesses and conditions like PCOS have some roots in gut health, whether you have digestive symptoms or not. You don't necessarily have to have anything like bloating or gas or constipation, diarrhea to have something imbalanced in your gut. And this is very common. Even individuals with something as serious as celiac disease sometimes have zero digestive symptoms, but the imbalances come out in other ways like the skin or the joints or the mood, neurological health. So please don't rule out gut symptoms as a potential driver, if not root cause of your PCOS symptoms. And there's multiple different mechanisms behind it. The first one is through something called dysbiosis. So we should all have like a rainforest of bacteria in our guts, probably 80% good guys, 20% bad guys. And the good guys keep the bad guys in check. Um, we don't want everything to be a good thing, else we're less resilient and our immune system isn't as strong. Whereas if we've got some bad guys in there, it keeps your immune system on its toes a little bit. But what can happen is your levels of good bacteria can be reduced for a number of different reasons or your levels of bad pathogenic organisms whether it's a parasite or yeast or fungus can be elevated and this is called dysbiosis so it's an imbalance of good and bad bacteria this drives a lot of inflammation it can drive insulin resistance and it can drive stress in the body as well and insulin resistance, inflammation and stress are like the three main drivers of PCOS. So there's different types of PCOS, but these are the drivers regardless of what's going on. Most women have all three of these going on. And stress kind of is a general term. It's not just mental, emotional stress. You could feel fine in terms of your job and you're able to pay bills and that's not very that's not a problem for you, but Stress is also an imbalanced blood sugar levels. It's having a chronic infection inside of your gut. It's not sleeping. So um, most people are stressed when you take that term into consideration. And when there's an imbalance inside of your gut, that can lead to um, a high production of endotoxin. So certain bacteria have an outer membrane that releases toxins. Um, a particular one is called lipopolysaccharide, also called LPS for short. And it's very toxic to the entire system. It can actually lead to leaky gut and leaky gut can obviously cause systemic symptoms because things are passing into your bloodstream that gets circulated and you just have a case of chronic inflammation from that point. And then other factors with gut health and PCOS, it could be malabsorption. So if you're not breaking your food down correctly, you don't have the right enzymes on board, you have all of this dysbiosis, this can lead to the malabsorption of nutrients that you need to actually create your hormones to use them correctly and then to get rid of them once you've once they've been used in the body and this is important for things like progesterone creation a lot of women have low progesterone levels because they're not ovulating properly or when they do ovulate the production isn't strong enough or they could have um, high levels of testosterone that aren't being broken down and excreted when they should be through the liver and then through the bowels. So you need a ton of nutrients to actually do that properly. Um, different cofactors, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals from a healthy diet and sometimes even supplements, additional, additional supplements too. And then the stress of all of these gut problems 
Firstly, stress can massively impact gut health, so it can shut down enzyme production and exacerbate all of those things I just mentioned. But the stress of having a gut infection can negatively impact insulin and hormone signaling as well. So if your brain thinks that there's something stressful going on, whether it's an external stress, so you're about to get hit by a car, you're in a famine, you're over-exercising, or it could be an internal stress. So like I said, you have nutrient deficiencies, you have a chronic inflammatory fire going on inside of your gut because you have so many bacterial problems in there, then your body doesn't know the difference. So your brain shuts down your reproduction and your fertility because it's not safe to have a potential baby if you're going through stress. So that's the connection between gut, stress and PCOS. It's all interconnected and present in the majority of women with PCOS. And the test that I use to determine what's going on inside the gut, it's not always necessary, but it's really valuable for a lot of women to find out what's going on, especially if there's symptoms involved like bloating and gas, reflux, those types of things and food sensitivities. Then I do often recommend testing that a little bit further because it's important to test and not guess when it comes to gut health. A lot of these things can have similar symptoms, but they have different treatment protocols. So the test is um, by Diagnostic Solutions and it's called GIMAP. It's pretty expensive in the UK. It's around um, £330 and it's you get like a seven page report of everything that's going inside of your gut. So I tend to recommend that one and I'll leave a link in the show notes as well. And the good thing is, is that if you're doing the Hormones in Harmony group coaching program that's starting in September. So if we haven't already started, maybe you can do next round if not. Um, then you have the option to upgrade so we can work together one-on-one and get a discounted price on the GI map and then have me run through your results and give you a personalized protocol as to what's going on inside that gut as well. Okay, so on to nutrition. What's the best diet for PCOS? That's like the number one question that I get. What should I eat? What should I avoid? And my answer is always, it depends because I don't know your health history. I don't know what medications you're on what other conditions you have alongside PCOS, if you have food sensitivities, all of these things can really determine what foods are right for you because there's no one size fits all, everyone's different and I don't have a cookie cutter plan that I just give to clients, it's all very individual based on what they tell me in a 90 minute intake session so it requires a lot of information for me to give you a guideline but even then I always tell people to not listen to me if something crops up and they don't feel great eating something or they've cut something out and they're feeling like they're missing and they're deficient in something then I always help I always work around that as well because you know your body best and you can't just read a list of PCOS foods on the internet and then implement that because it's not personalized to your particular needs but in general I would say just eat real food so hashtag jerf that's kind of my motto and ideally high quality, a lot of organic food. Um, if you haven't listened to episode five with Dr. Felice Gersh, she's um, a PCOS expert and she's really big into organic and the importance of that because organic food are reduced. They're not free completely of pesticides, but the lower levels of pesticides, the better because these can, again, act as hormone disruptors and this even links to conditions like cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, fertility issues with um, a really high intake of pesticides from your fruits and vegetables. 
So you could be trying to do all the right things and juicing all of these vegetables, having just smoothies, having big salads every day. But if, you're, if they're not organic or the majority organic, then there could be some negative impacts from that as well. And obviously it's a little bit more costly. But I think just for the health of the planet, your health and the nutrient density of the organic food as well, it's really worth it. And I think we should all be putting our money where we want to see change in the world and trying to reduce the sales to some of these big companies that are basically poisoning the world but do what you can in terms of money and there's lists online of the biggest defenders so the ones to always buy organic they're called the dirty dozen and the clean 15 so these are the least sprayed and the ones that you can kind of get away with non-organic and you can find those lists on the environmental working group website as well what i will say is that it's difficult and I don't recommend a vegetarian or vegan diet to clients with PCOS because for one I'm not a fan anyway just the the restrictions that you have the lack of nutrient density in terms of high quality animal protein and fish and eggs those types of things are some of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet and you're eliminating those and even a vegan diet done right so I'm not talking like um crisp and chips and all of these like processed vegan foods and oreos whatever they eat um even the healthy well-prepared vegan diets it can just be very difficult and especially if you have insulin resistance or the insulin resistant driving your pcos then the protein sources that you'd need to get in high amounts of things like chickpeas and beans and legumes because it is so important to get really high quality protein and quite a lot of it in the day to stabilize your blood sugar levels to repair your cells to help build your hormones because your hormones like estrogen and progesterone have amino acids coming from protein and cholesterol coming from healthy fats as the backbone to actually create them so if you're not consuming enough then you're not going to be creating enough hormones or really high quality hormones that are going to work for you not against you but the problem with vegan or vegetarian diets is that the protein sources are often very high in carbohydrates as well. So it can just be hard to get enough in without getting too many carbohydrates. And if you're insulin resistant, then you may not feel great eating that many carbohydrates and it can maybe lead to weight gain or acne, worsening of your menstrual cycles too. So that's kind of my caveat with vegan, vegetarian diets and PCOS. It's kind of a no-no for most people. Well, that's not to say it can't be done, but obviously it depends on some genetic factors as well. If you are in the Northern Hemisphere, then sometimes you require less carbohydrates than those who are near the equator. But again, that's another, that's another story. We'll go into that in another episode as well. For insulin resistant, lower carb, lower carb is recommended. So not like really very low carb um, in some situations, it's not recommended. But the carbohydrates and sugars aren't the only factor in insulin resistance. There's multiple different things. And again, there's another blog post, which I'll link with the root causes of insulin resistance and the different factors to pay attention to. Even things like sleep, lack of sleep can drive insulin resistance. So you could be eating an amazing diet that should be working for you. But if you're lacking in sleep, then you're actually going to be more insulin resistant the next day. Um, so that's just in one night. So you can imagine like 10 years of sleep deprivation what's that what that's going to do for someone as well but just in general for optimal health then we should all be avoiding things like 
processed foods, packaged foods, trans fats, refined sugars, um, things in a box, frozen microwave meals. They're just generally for everyone, but particularly if you've got PCOS, sugars and cakes and sweets and fizzy drinks and fruit juices, it's not really recommended that you have them. When things are back in balance, so your hormones are back on track after a few months of doing some of this work, then you can have things like that on um, occasion. And I always like to recommend just helping your body process them a little bit better. So once you're in a good place, you want that donut, then that's absolutely fine. But maybe you can do a strength training session that day to help your muscles absorb that sugar. Or you can go for a brisk walk after eating something. Um, maybe you can limit your carbohydrates in another meal just so you're not having too much that day. And for some people, I've been told that this is like disordered eating and it's absolutely not. It's just about respecting your body, understanding how it works and choosing to help your body process that a little bit better. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, it's not like you're punishing yourself for eating it. It's just that you chose to eat it. That's absolutely fine. It's not a bad thing. But if you want your hormones to be in a better place, because we do have a hormone condition, like I said, there's a genetic factor there as well. Some people are lucky that they can eat what they want and not have symptoms. But if you have PCOS like me, we always need to kind of stay aware of this and stay eating optimal foods the majority of the time. Um, but once you get to a good place, it can be like 80, 20, and that's, that's good enough. Okay, so ketogenic diets, do I ever recommend that? Um, a lot of the time, no. Um, for most people, there's just other ways around it and it's not always required. There's obviously the people who have severe insulin resistance, they've tried everything, there's a lot going on. Maybe they've got some neurological conditions as well alongside and ketogenic diets have been um, well studied for that. So in very rare circumstances, yes, I would recommend a ketogenic diet, but only for a short period of time. But a lot of the time I don't really need to go to that extreme and there's ways around it and focusing on other things like exercise, nutrient density, it often does the job but I'm not anti-keto diet or anything like that. Um, and then I wouldn't go longer than a few weeks because it can kind of cause detriment to other body systems, maybe like the microbiome or the thyroid, if done, um, if done incorrectly as well, that's important. If there are signs of insulin resistance, so again, get your blood work done. But if you're dealing with weight gain, weight loss resistance, that abdominal weight, maybe sugar cravings, um, signs of blood sugar fluctuations then I sometimes recommend something called carb tapering where you start your day with relatively low carbs so a really high protein and fat breakfast whether that's eggs and avocado um, a protein smoothie and limiting your carbohydrates to something like a piece of fruit or particularly some berries would be my preference and then as the day goes on you gradually increase your carbohydrates at each meal so at lunch Maybe you'd have a few squares of beetroot or squash or a scoop of quinoa with your lunch or your chicken salad. And then at dinner, you'd have maybe something like a sweet potato or um, some cooked fruit or some gluten-free grains. And this carb tapering, it really helps with insulin resistance because how you start your day with breakfast really influences the rest of your day in terms of blood sugar and insulin response. So if you start on really good note with um, little insulin being produced that has a knock-on effect on your other meals as well so you can still have your carbohydrates but just have them maybe in the evenings and then you can go for a quick walk after eating them and that'll help you to process them a little bit better 
and there's another window in the day if you have a workout particularly a strength training workout in the pulse workout period within 30 to 90 minutes getting in some good carbohydrates there um that would be the exception if you were to work out in the morning then you could get away with some higher carbohydrates at that meal um but again everyone's different and if you're severely insulin resistant then maybe you require a little bit less and then remember if you have adrenal PCOS or you're really stressed or you're underweight and have maybe other conditions alongside whether that's adrenal issues blood sugar issues you're pregnant then you will require have higher carbohydrates and then just sticking with the healthy complex types fruits root vegetables gluten-free grains like oats quinoa those types of things as well and someone asked about soy is soy recommended um again it depends and i'm sorry that there's no like one answer here but soy is a phytoestrogen so you sometimes hear it for benefits with pms or in menopause some women use it as a phytoestrogen and despite what people think it doesn't increase estrogen levels in the body it can kind of act like, a bit like an adaptogen so it kind of sits in the receptor site and if there's too much estrogen it flushes it away if there's not enough it kind of stimulates that a little bit and this can be helpful in some situations if there's some estrogen dominance there um, then yes but i always stick with the fermented types of soy so like miso and tempeh because the raw forms of soy soybeans whether that's tofu or like soy milk and soy yogurts and soy protein this can be detrimental to gut health in some people because it is quite an inflammatory food and it is one of the top allergens so that is a factor too it could kind of impact your immune system and cause inflammation but the other thing is that um soy when it's not being cooked and fermented and processed correctly is detrimental to thyroid health um, especially if consumed in excess because it has goitrogenic properties so it can inhibit thyroid hormone production and the conversion from t4 into the active form of t3 and remember that up to 25 percent of women with pcos have some thyroid condition as well so i don't personally recommend soy but for people who maybe can't get access to a lot of high quality meats or prefer more of a um a less high meat diet because that's definitely like personal preference then sticking with things like miso and tempeh can be quite good um, but again it's not for everyone and it's very individual are there any particular foods to increase um again it's hard to say because one man's meat is another man's poison that good quote definitely rings true in this situation like for me personally um you avocados are claimed to be like the healthiest food ever but for me they cause more acne they cause anxiety because i'm sensitive to histamine rich foods so i would say though there are some foods with nutritional benefits that could help pcos but if you start to feel like negative symptoms because of these then stop having them you don't have to just carry on because i tell you to um the first one would be ceylon cinnamon so adding this to your smoothies or your meals i like it on top of vegetables and meats um it does really work in things like curries breakfast or in drinks you can have it in herbal teas or your matcha or your coffee and it's the ceylon type of cinnamon not cassia so check on the back of the ingredient list 
and you sometimes need to buy it from a different health food store or something because a lot of the time it's the cheaper cassia version that's not got the beneficial effects and cinnamon has insulin sensitizing benefits too the second one would be spearmint tea two cups per day has been shown to improve um, pcos hormones reduction in androgens improvements with things like hirsutism oily skin acne breakouts and it tastes pretty good so that one's easy they're both easy to implement as well my favorite food one of my favorite foods is organ meats because they're one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet they probably are they always need to be organic because the liver is the filter of the toxins so if you're eating an unhealthy animal's organs then you're not really going to get any benefits you're probably going to get more problematic factors so um they're like nature's multivitamins they've got b vitamins zinc vitamin a which are all important for immunity hormonal balance and thyroid health too and then focusing on those healthy fats and high quality proteins at every single meal uh, that you have so healthy fats are going to be things like avocado butter and ghee nuts and seeds olives coconut products and then your high quality proteins organ meats eggs wild oily fish several times per week red meat chicken seafood as well and any foods to reduce and avoid i would say for everyone regardless of if you have pcos is industrial seed oils so these are the things that are used in processed foods a lot of the time fast foods for definite canola oil sunflower oil rapeseed soybean and um I think that's everything most of the most of the list anyway these are omega-6 fats and these are pro-inflammatory to the body so we need small amounts from like natural foods some nuts and seeds and meats have omega-6 but when they're really processed in this way then they are very inflammatory and um, we can often get high amounts of those hidden in certain foods i recently did a blog post um uh, instagram post on dairy-free milk so a lot of them have rapeseed oil as a thickener and it makes them creamy and frothy when you heat them up and they don't split but if you're having that every day then you're getting quite a lot of omega-6 rich fats which can cause inflammation in your body and we need some inflammation to overcome illnesses and heal our body but as you can remember that a lot of the time people with insulin resistance or PCOS have a lot of inflammation already so we just want to avoid that as much as possible if not balance that out with really high quality omega-3s and sadly you can't really get enough from plant sources so people claiming that flax chia seeds you can get all of the omega-3s that you need from that but it's not true i think the conversion into the active form so the plant form has ala um but the active therapeutic form of omega-3 is epa or dha which is only found in animal forms particularly wild oily fish salmon mackerel sardines herring those types of things as well and dairy i had a lot of questions on dairy as well and um, i've actually got a blog post on dairy and it's kind of claiming that everyone should cut it out but if you read the full thing it's not always the case um initially i think it's important that everyone with pcos cuts it out because you don't really know that you're sensitive until you've done an elimination and then re reintroduction so if you've been drinking it all your life and feel fine on it, that's not to mean that you're not reacting. It could just be a low-grade inflammation that's just driving your hormone imbalance. And the only way to know this, you can obviously do allergy tests, but they're not always accurate. 
the most accurate thing is to eliminate it, reintroduce and see if you're reacting. And the problem with dairy is that it's very insulinogenic, meaning that even though it's low carbohydrate and high in healthy fats, if it's good quality, it just stimulates a lot of insulin response in the body. And women with PCOS already have way high levels of insulin a lot of the time. So it could just be exacerbating the problem. Plus it's a hormonal fluid. So it's kind of designed to bulk up a calf into a huge cow. And it's still got the breast milk hormones in there, like estrogen that's adding onto your sensitive, potentially already imbalanced hormones. So you're just adding fuel to the fire. But that being said, if you reintroduce it after a 30-day period, you're absolutely fine. Um, it's a good food source for you. It's easily accessible. Then I'm happy for you to continue with that if you're not displaying um, worsening symptoms digestively, or it could be anything really, headaches or skin rashes, low mood the next day. Um, but what I would say is that it should always be really high quality, preferably organic, and even better if it's raw. So it's less hard to find, but if you Google raw dairy raw milk near to where you live um this is much better because it's it's naturally occurring enzymes in there it helps you break it down it's got more beneficial bacteria it's got the fat and the different nutrients that you need to process the dairy correctly um so that would be my only caveat with the dairy if you're if you're tolerating it well and i find that most people tolerate butter and ghee anyway regardless of if they have um lactose intolerance and things because the butter and the dairy and the ghee are pure fats a lot of the time they have very minimal amounts of protein but obviously if you have a dairy allergy then that's probably going to be problematic to you as well so don't try that one on to the lifestyle questions now first one is about exercise which type of exercise is best there's a lot of conflicting information out there so i wanted to kind of clear it up Again, this is another one that I have a blog post on and it's the best types of exercise and the worst for PCOS. So as an overview, I think everyone should be walking more. That's like the best type for um, everyone, regardless of what type of PCOS you have, what collection of symptoms. It just has so many benefits, especially if it's done outside, if you're in nature, if you're doing deep breathing um, and using it as like a meditative process as well because it helps the insulin resistance it's low stress it reduces it reduces inflammation and it can help you to process and metabolize the carbohydrates after eating so you can use that to your advantage as well for insulin resistant type then two a combination of two types of exercise works particularly well in my experience um, the first one is strength training so building muscle lifting heavy weights don't be afraid of getting in the weight room and lifting some heavy stuff because you're not going to get like massively bulky or anything like that. Um, and the muscle that you grow actually helps your body to become more insulin sensitive, it improves metabolism, it improves your hormonal balance. Um, so it's overall very good for all types of PCOS, but you need to limit the intensity if you have some sort of stress on board as well. But like multiple times per week is absolutely perfect. And then remember about the post-workout period with the refueling of glycogen, consuming some carbohydrates is a good way to get some carbs in if you're particularly insulin sensitive. And then HIIT training may also be good if you're insulin resistant, not great if you have adrenal stress as well. So if you're not sleeping, you're um, underweight or you, you've not got a history of um, 
metabolic problems. And HIIT training, so HIIT training can be great for um, those with insulin resistance as well, unless they have some degree of insulin, unless they have some degree of adrenal stress. So if you're not sleeping, you've got a full-time job, you're really stressed in your day-to-day life, adding in another stressful workout may not be the best idea. Whereas if you're overweight or metabolically challenged, you have insulin resistance, but your stress levels are relatively low, then HIIT training can be really good for you as well. So it's short bursts of exercises like bodyweight lunges and jump squats and burpees for 10 to 20 minutes. I won't go over maybe 20, 30 minutes maximum because that's when it gets into more of the cortisol release. If it is adrenal stress that you have, definitely avoid anything that's boot camp style or chronic cardio. And that's definitely a no-no because after a 40 minute mark, that's when cortisol starts to spike. So if you do have adrenal stress or high cortisol, um, then limiting your workouts to like 30 minutes is going to be really valuable as well. And don't forget about overtraining. So people with PCOS, they tend to read online that it's good to lose weight and exercise more. So they start to become a gym rat and they're in the gym every single day for multiple hours and they're wondering why their symptoms are worse maybe their period's more irregular their skin's worse than it's ever been they're really fatigued they're feeling sore all the time these are all signs of potential overtraining so i always recommend like two rest days um minimum for most women not going for longer than 60 minutes at a time and letting your body to recover and heal and fueling your body in between sessions that's where the improvements really come the the recovery is where you get the most results and just as a side note if you're not consuming any food after your workout so you're fasting or you're waiting a couple of hours until you eat your next meal then your androgen levels are going to be remaining high and you when you eat food that reduces the stress reduces the androgens and um like i say if you if you're not eating then i find a lot of women develop something like acne or the cycles get a little bit off because they're not refueling properly. So that's just a side note and something to pay attention to. Supplements, which supplements are best for PCOS? Again, it's very individual depending on what else is going on. If you're on medication and this information is just um, as it should be for information, informational purposes only. So please don't just start taking everything that I'm going to list here. But as a general, there are like a few things that most women could benefit from. Um, and with supplements, they should always be of a high quality. They shouldn't be like bought potentially counterfeit products on Amazon because that's very common. Um, so if it's not coming from a reputable retailer, then you, you have no idea what you're taking, which is dangerous. Um, the ones that I use are practitioner grade, so they're very high quality. You they're likely more expensive, but they work. They actually work. You don't need to take them for as long, or you don't need to take as many. They don't have all of these bulking agents or fillers and preservatives in there either. So generally, most people benefit from a magnesium supplement, regardless of if they have PCOS or not, because it's so deficient in the soils these days. Stress depletes magnesium. And yeah, just the food that we isn't really high in magnesium anymore like it used to be. Um, so magnesium citrate is best for those who are more prone to constipation. It gives a, lax- a slight laxative effects and it helps to bring water into the colon, which can soften stools. If that's not your problem, maybe you're more prone to diarrhea, then magnesium glycinate is most beneficial for you. 
and I have a blog post on um, this exact subject, so the best supplements to take for PCOS, which I'll link. This goes more into detail with the recommended doses and types. So if you want more information on that, I'm not going to go through it now, but you can definitely check that blog post episode out as well. A methylated B complex can also be very helpful, again, because we can't get enough in our diet. And with hormone imbalances, B vitamins can often be lacking, especially if you've had a history of using the birth control pill at any point then if you've not repleted your levels of b vitamins um then you really need to because this is one of the biggest families of vitamins that are depleted whilst on the pill so the term methylated means that the b vitamins are actually active and bioavailable to use in your body and the synthetic forms the ones to avoid you're going to see folic acid instead of folate so read the ingredients list if it says folic acid then just put it back on the shelf. If it says folate or methylfolate or MTHF, then that's a good sign that it's from a high quality company who knows what they're doing and they're staying up to date with the latest research because it can be a little bit more expensive, but it doesn't require your body to take that folic acid and go through 12 processes before it gets to the active form. The methylfolate is just straight in there and it does the job right away. It doesn't need all of these conversion processes. And a lot of the population, I think it's like 30% of the population have a genetic SNP. So they have um, a genetic function that's um, kind of impaired and they can't process folic acid at all. So if you're not aware of your genetics, it's best to just be safe rather than sorry and just go straight for the active form. Um, it's worth the money and it could be very beneficial. B vitamins are good for um, processing your hormones helping with liver detoxification of your hormones, insulin sensitivity and stress management. So if any of those are driving your PCOS, B vitamins can help. One thing, if you're taking very high doses of B12 or biotin, then this can actually worsen acne. So if you're getting acne breakouts after starting a multivitamin, first check the quality, check if there's any additional bulking agents in there, but then maybe reduce your dose, have it once a week or once every couple of days because it can be a trigger for some people as well. Inositol, I've mentioned, again, on the blog post, I go into what doses, what types of inositol, because there are multiple. And the one that everyone kind of promotes, the brand, um, it is quite expensive, and it's not the only beneficial one, so don't feel like you have to spend like near £100 a month for that supplement. There are cheaper brands that work just as well, and just because they've not got the marketing behind them doesn't mean that they're not useful zinc um, if you're taking higher doses or for a long period of time then it is recommended that you balance that with copper because they work in ratio and high mega dosing something can throw off another nutrient so that's why it's important to be mindful about what you're doing but a lot of women with pcos are deficient in zinc um, so the food sources that you can only really get them from is things like seafood oysters are really high and red meat um, pumpkin seeds also have um, smaller amounts, but plant foods, again, aren't the greatest source. Um, zinc's good for managing androgens in the body, so it helps to kind of regulate testosterone production, and it helps with skin healing and cell function and detoxification as well. So there's so many functions for zinc in the body, and so many people can be lacking in that as well. Um, and finally, fish oil, zinc can be very important for a lot of women. Um, but still stick with the three times a week of oily fish if possible from high quality wild caught 
if possible. Um, I like to cycle in things like fish oil and probiotics as well, just so we're not getting, our bodies getting used to them, um, kind of doing different seasons, adding them in. Fish oil is very anti-inflammatory, it helps with insulin resistance, it helps to um, reduce the stress response as well, so if it is adrenal PCOS, or you have things like brain fog, anxiety or depression, fish oil can be very therapeutic. And this is the one that you do need to spend more money on because the conventionally farmed fish are very toxic. And if you want high quality fish oil that's not rancid and not pro-inflammatory rather than anti-inflammatory, you do need to buy from a reputable company. Um, my favourite is the Burr Biology brand. and The supplement is called Lionheart. So that's one in the UK. If you're in the US or other countries, check out Pure Encapsulations for the EPA DHA Essentials. And this isn't sponsored in any way. I'm just showing what's worked for me and what I recommend. Superfoods. Um, maca. Someone's asked about maca in benefits for PCOS. I don't tend to use maca a lot. I tend to use that more for women that I've worked with who are more like perimenopausal age, so like 40 plus um because it can actually increase i've seen it increase estrogen and androgen levels um in women because it's quite a stimulating hormone and even though it has adaptogenic properties that's what i've just seen clinically it just doesn't work for everyone and some people find it difficult on the guts if they're using a powder form in like smoothies and things so always make sure it is gelatinized if you buy maca that means that it's kind of been cooked because it is technically a root vegetable so if you're just having a ton of maca raw, then you can expect some digestive issues. So not my personal go-to. There's definitely other things I recommend. I tend to stick with more of like the spirulina, moringa, baobab, those types of things if you want a superfood. But I'd rather you spend your money on high quality supplements and organic food rather than um, paying for these superfoods because they are like the cherry on the cake, but they're not necessary for overcoming your symptoms. Um, absolutely not. And finally, Vitex, someone's asked the benefits of Vitex. What is it? Vitex is um, also called chase tree berry by some practitioners and it's a herb. And you can think of it as like a hormone or ovarian adaptogen. It helps to kind of regulate PMS, increase progesterone, which is great if you maybe have irregular cycles or PMS symptoms, breast tenderness, emotional um, cravings, those types of things. But the way it works to increase progesterone levels is by increasing luteinizing hormone, also called LH. But the problem is that women with PCOS often already have high levels of LH because the body is trying to prepare for ovulation over and over again. And if you're just adding another herb that's boosting that even more, then it could actually exacerbate your symptoms, delay ovulation. So it's absolutely not for everyone. And this is one that should really be taken under the care of a practitioner because if you take it at the wrong times of your cycles you take the wrong amounts it can inhibit ovulation and actually make your symptoms worse and i mistakenly made that um stupid mistake when i first started to self-treat and take everything that i read on the internet and my acne was terrible and i didn't ovulate that month and had even worse P pms because of that um so check your lh levels the typical ratio that you'd see with PCOS is that on day three, that's when it should be checked, the FSH and LH should be checked. Um, you typically see the LH to be double or triple that of the FSH. So if FSH is two, 
the LH tends to be four plus um, on cycle day three, which is quite high. And that's a classic ratio with PCOS. So if you're in that situation, don't try Vitex because it won't work for you. So maybe try some of the other food solutions um, and use some of these more, um, these last things as like final cherry on top of the cake once you've done everything. But as you can see, there's a lot to kind of work through here. Don't expect to completely overhaul your life overnight and stress yourself out trying to go through all of these things. Definitely save this episode, go back and take notes. I'm sure it's going to be one of the ones that you um, keep referring back to if this is something that you're struggling with. Because, like I mentioned, the NHS websites for PCOS or the forums online, there's so much misinformation on there and it like drives me insane when I read through people struggling and people are just giving recommendations and it's not very personal. And even though this information isn't personalised to you, I've kind of disclaimed that and you need to work with someone who can help you. Um, whether that's me or another practitioner, that's absolutely fine. But I just want you to improve your symptoms so that you don't have to struggle with your symptoms for years like I did. And I was lucky that I didn't have to struggle with it for decades like some women do. But this is why it's like my passion now. And I'm just a bit of a geek when it comes to PCOS because you can see there's so many different layers and complexities. And that's what I love about it. I'm like a detective trying to find out what's going on and the gut and PCOS connection is my personal favourite so I'm actually going to go and geek out on some research papers now so I hope you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions after reading this remember there's going to be links to all of the blog posts I mentioned so if there's particular questions you have on nutrition or lifestyle check the blog post first and then feel free to add your questions to my weekly um, Q&As that I host on Mondays or Tuesdays on Instagram. You can find me at Viva Natural Health. But for now, I'm going to leave you with that. It's been a long episode. And if you're enjoying these extensive Q&As or masterclasses that I've been doing recently and you have a recommendation for a subject or something that you want me to cover, feel free to send me a message on Instagram or you can send an email question to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll be happy to answer your questions there. So hope you have a great rest of your week and I'll see you next week here on the Hormones in Harmony podcast.